There is staggering variety in white wine, way beyond what many of us imagine. On this week's Check the Pantry, we're joined by the Grog Shop's Skip Clary, who will help us navigate the maze of grape varietals in regions to help us find something nice to drink with our dinner. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to Check the Pantry. If the only thing that mattered about beverages was that they be reasonably inexpensive, tasty, available in a wide variety of flavors, and go really well with whatever you happen to be eating at that particular meal, including breakfast, white wine would be the number one selling drink category on the planet. But we all know that the most important thing about beverages isn't what they taste like, but what they say about the drinker. It's why cola companies spend vast amounts of money attempting to differentiate their very similar drinks. It's why the big three beer makers, which are now all owned by the same parent company, nevertheless have giant advertising budgets to persuade their brand loyalists that their particular beer makes them special. And so to merely see white wine for what it is, a flavorful alcoholic liquid, we have to wade through a cultural swamp of associations. It's barely a drink anymore. It's an identity. I don't even have to spell it out for you. All I have to do is say white wine. Sit back and let the images flow, all the movies, all the commercials, all the throwaway lines and jokes, all the times at a party or at a dinner where you paused before the choice of white wine, red wine, or beer, and imagine that picking one or the other mattered in some way, all the thousands of examples we've all seen of what kind of person drinks white wine. It's not just you. The exact same images are going through my head, too. Now, throw them all away. They're all garbage. Today, we're going to toss out white wine as an identity. And while we're at it, let's toss out red wine as an identity too. And beer. And whiskey. Let's just look at them all for what they are. Liquids. Made by people. Meant to be tasted. And enjoyed. I might like this or that liquid and not care for this or that liquid, but neither of those things says anything especially substantial about me as a person, no matter what people with advanced degrees in marketing might want to believe. Skip. Yeah. I am very excited to have you here to uh, talk about white wine. I'm looking forward to it. And I know it's kind of a generic um, topic, but we talked about red wine last year, and I thought it kind of made sense to talk sort of an overview before before you really dial into specific varietals. And also, with specific varietals, I really want to, uh, I really want to be able to do tastings. And uh, given yeah. the current worldwide pandemic, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we do what we can do. I want to start out actually before we even get into like the nuts and bolts of of how white wine is made versus red wine and the different varietals and what kind of grapes and where they're grown and how production differs between them all. Before we get into the nuts and bolts, I actually want to talk a little bit sort of confront right out right off the bat head on some of the mythology surrounding white wine, particularly in the US, which is things mm-hmm. like White wine is for women. Red wine is for men. White wine is for fish and lunch. Uh, Red wine is for, you know, big steaks. I mean, you've been in the wine business a long time. And where do you, Mm -hmm. where do you see these, these myths sort of coming from and how, how do they get expressed and, and what do you do to try to combat them? There's a lot of misconceptions about white wine and a lot of kind of posturing, I have to say, you know, I'm a cab man or, you know, I like oaky buttery Chardonnay. And it's like, that's supposed to be an identity statement. People don't really, in my view, seem to understand what white wine is for. They don't really understand its purpose. And 
there's almost a kind of willful ignorance on the part of some people when they say, oh, I don't drink white wine. I don't like it. It's like, well, honestly, that just means you haven't had a good one or you haven't had it in the right context. For me, wine and food are inextricably linked, but the typical American consumer doesn't actually use wine that way. They drink wine kind of on on its own. Even though one of my first questions for people when they come into the store is like, well, are you gonna drink this wine by itself or are you gonna drink it on its own? And to be honest, 90% of people are consuming wine kind of just as a thing by itself. They're not, it's not part of a wider context of food and wine. So they tend to go for big wines that kind of telegraph their punches. If you're going to get a big, buttery, oaky Napa Chardonnay, you know what to expect. It's going to tell you all about itself right up front. You're not going to have to meet it even halfway. It'll, it does most of the heavy lifting for you. Same thing with a Napa Cab. These are not subtle wines. You know, they're not necessarily high acid wines. They're not wines for aging. They're not subtle. They're, they're just to be had on their own. And that's great, but they're, they're kind of like the Imperial IPA equivalent in, in the world of wine. They're just big, massive flavor bombs. I think when you start trying to put white wine in particular in, into some kind of context, food has to very rapidly be brought into your, your reckoning. But, uh, but yeah, when it comes to white wine, where it really shines, in my view, yes, there are some lovely white wines to have on their own, but where white wine really comes into its own is at the dinner table. White wine tends to have more acid. There are a lot more grape varieties that are naturally high in acid and tend to retain those acids even in warmer climate growing regions than red wines. Um, so that acid keeps your palate clean. It's a fresher, lighter character wine. And so whether it's seafood or certain cheeses, like, I mean, take a Sauvignon Blanc with a goat cheese and man, you're, you're good to go. They're, they're just a great combination. Whereas if you take a, you know, a glass of Merlot with that goat cheese, you really are heading for a bad time. It's just not going to be nice. So for me, when I do look at the American consumer, a lot of the wine, like I said, is 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 bought to be just consumed on its own, probably within an hour of getting that bottle of wine home. And and food is just a not a consideration. And so you tend to find wines that are that are really popular to the American consumer. You've got the Napa Chardonnay with the heavy, oaky, buttery character. You've got uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. People love New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And I'm not knocking it, but it's it's a very overt character. It really doesn't have any secrets. It it tells you everything about itself straight up front. It's grassy. It's grapefruit. It's gooseberry. Very herbaceous character, and and it's a big flavor. It's a big bold wine. So on its own, and on the other end of the spectrum, you've got some lighter, kind of mediocre lightweights. I'm talking about Pinot Grigio. The the Northern Italian Pinot Grigio is light, it's crisp, mild. It's certainly not challenging. Is it a rock star with food? No, not necessarily. Is is it okay to drink on its own? Sure, cuz it's there's there's no challenge. It's it's a lightweight. It's it's very user friendly. A lot of those Pinot Grigios, if you really stick your nose in the glass, what you're going to smell is stale beer. <laughs> try it sometimes folks and yes there are some more expensive pinot grigios but are they worth no i'm talking about you santa margarita for 30 <laughs> bucks a bottle there is no way um so this is actually this is actually really funny that, that you brought up those three wines specifically because those are the three wines that i sort of wanted to structure the show around because each one of those they're all they're very different from each other and they're all probably yeah. like you say they're like the three most popular wines in America as far as sales go absolutely but yeah. they're very different from each other in very specific ways and i think the people that like one you know like a certain thing about them so what I, what i'd like to do is take each one in turn and sort of say okay if you like this particular style of wine you know and that's kind of where you want to start from 
what else is out there that's relevant to that? Sure. And I think let's let's I think we should start with Pinot Grigio because it is like the Coors Light, you know, where there's really not much yep. going on, and you're basically just you know standing around pounding glass after glass of it, and that's the point of it. Yep. Even a, even a pretty good Pinot Grigio, like it can have like a nice sort of very clean acidic profile that that can go absolutely reasonably well with food. So if what you're looking for is that kind of very light textured, you know, very crisp, very clean wine, but you want something that maybe stands up for itself a little more, where can you go from there? I mean, the first place that I would think would be, let's talk about Pinot Gris, which is the same grape, sure. but a diff- but it implies a Very different, different style. style. Very different style. In the wine courses I do, we have to do a lot of blind tasting, sometimes in exam settings. And one of the wines that we universally dread is getting a market-driven light, inoffensive Pinot Grigio, because there is very little that you can actually say in what's supposed to be a very detailed tasting note. You've got five minutes to write a tasting note that you have to be able to say eight or 10 different specific things about. And there's, I'm sorry, when you try a Pinot Grigio like that, there's very little you can say about it. It's lemony, it's lightly fruity, (laughs) it's crisp, it's dry. And that's about all you can say about it. And I've seen people I mean, I've been in this setting and you look around the room and you know that everybody's tasting the Pinot Grigio and everybody's faces are just turning red. They're shaking their heads, they're huffing and puffing and going, what the hell can I say about this thing? Okay, so you take that kind of style and you can move in another direction from it. It's not like a massive departure, but I love Riesling and okay, let's let's debunk this myth. I've heard this far too many times. When I recommend a Riesling to somebody, they're like, oh, I don't like sweet wine. It's like, I wasn't recommending a sweet wine. Oh, Riesling is sweet, isn't it? I'm like, nope. And you recommend a bone dry Riesling from say the Mosul or Rheingau. And you say, look, just take this home. It's dry. It's gonna work with that Thai food that you want it to go with. And they come back in and going, God, I've never, I've never had a wine like that before. And it was perfect with the food. And the next thing you know, they're dyed in the wool Riesling fans because it was put in its proper context. And I'm more than happy to have a Riesling like that on its own. There's enough going on. Riesling is one of those wines that if you, if you pay attention to what it's doing on your palate, you actually find it to be, I know this sounds a little pretentious, but it's a very dynamic wine. It moves around your palate. You're not getting just acidity and fruit. You're getting spices. You're getting almost a, and this is not in a bad way, but you're getting a, a almost a sort of petrol or kerosene volatility to it that just fills your head. It's it's just such an exciting wine. And if you talk to a lot of sommeliers out there and you start asking them, well, what what are your, some of your favorite wines? Riesling's inevitably come top of the list. And they're not, cra- they don't have to be crazy expensive. And what you get for your money, in my view, is always way better than, than what you spend on a Pinot Grigio. It's still got the acidity. It's still not a heavy wine. It's still a porch pounder if you want it, you know? But it it brings a little something extra for the money, and and it's very interesting stuff. So, so given that given that Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris are the exact same grape, what do they do different in Alsace that they don't do right. in Northern Italy? You know, they're yeah. both they're both sort of very light bodied, but Pinot Grigio always has this. I mean, Pinot Gris always has like almost this honeyed floral character that isn't ever really yeah. there in in Pinot Grigio. What they can do with Pinot Gris in Alsace, which is a very cool region, very cool region. um, And you would expect with that cold weather for the wine to be even crisper and lighter. But Pinot Gris grown in those soils, in those vineyards, tends to give up a much fatter, um, more rounded like you say, honey and spice are, are really characters that, that you'll find there. Um, they're richer wines for sure. The soil has, has a lot to do with it. Certainly the solar uh, aspect there. The Alsace is the driest part of France. It's just on one side of, of these, this mountain range and it's in a rain shadow. That area is just bone dry. Huh. So 
the vines have to really, really auger down to get to enough water to keep going because they don't irrigate. They, uh. this is, that's Europe. They, they don't irrigate. Uh, dry farming is the norm. It really has to do with those vine roots going down sometimes 30, 40 feet to get to enough moisture to survive for the year. Whereas in Italy, yeah, that, that part of Italy, you certainly get more rain. But, but the Pinot Gris style is, is definitely bigger and richer and, and certainly has a, has a heavier texture. Um, you can look at, at some of the Pinot Gris that you get from Oregon, and they're doing much the same thing. Uh, they're, they're getting a, a much bigger, more Alsace style. And, it seems, and to like be a, it. it seems to be a fairly reliable indicator if you see on a label pinot gris versus pinot grigio no matter where it's from you know if it's from mm-hmm. oregon or napa or wherever if they call it pinot grigio it's going to be very italian and if if they call it pinot gris it's going to be in that slightly heavier Definitely. french style okay so let's move on to sort of like the mid-range uh as far as both texture and sort of flavor of the the sort of big three american favorite white wines, which is Sauvignon Blanc, which here, like, I don't even, it wasn't even a popular grape until New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc came along, right? Like nobody, yeah. really, nobody really cared about it here. Yeah. Although you did get, uh, like Robert Mondavi, um, kind of, uh, I won't say invented, but, but kind of got people on the, on the, the train of, of Fumé Blanc. Oh, that's right. Which, I forgot about that. It's the same grape, right? Though, right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a dry Sauvignon Blanc. That's that's all it is. It's not. It's nowhere near as grassy as the New Zealand stuff. But there's a lot of contributing factors there. But Fumé Blanc is is not a, a different grape. I think it was as much a marketing ploy as anything else. Robert Mondavi was nothing if not a businessman. He was very very successful, and he did a lot to bring great wine to people around the world. And I I certainly applaud him for that. But he was also a very smart businessman. He knew what he was doing. And Fumé Blanc was just a way of distinguishing, oh, well, this is Californian Sauvignon Blanc, so we're going to call it something different. And you'll find that that term Fumé Blanc is actually kind of going by the wayside now that Sauvignon Blanc is getting a, a more credibility as a grape just by that name, you get a lot of a lot of uh, well. Basically, the, there's only a, a very small handful of grapes that are allowed to be used in Bordeaux for a dry white table wine. Um, Sauvignon Blanc being the big one, Semillon being the partner grape, if you will, that brings a lot more richness. It's not as high in acid, but it brings some more tropical fruit to balance out that sharper, racy edge that Sauvignon has. But you also had the Loire Valley. And so you've got oh, right. Sancerre. So Sancerre, though, is grown on totally different soil. It, you're going to be looking at a lot of limestone and chalk. Oh, you've also got Puy Fume, which is another Sauvignon Blanc. Amazing wines. But when they're grown in the Loire, especially in Puy Fume, you get the, the Fume means basically smoke. And you get this gunflint smokiness about Puy Fume that is just outrageous. It was like smoked trout. Oh my God. The two get along like husband and wife. It's just too cool. Those regions were, uh, they were not very widely known. I mean, the, the wine consumers in America certainly didn't know that much about them. And, um, but they did in Europe and, and they were certainly very popular there. I mean, I love a good Sancerre and it's a wine that I have turned on dyed in the wool red wine drinkers to try when they were having a certain thing for dinner. I'm like, look, this is not a night for red wine. You got to try this thing. And they come back in and one of them, one of my regular customers came in and he's like, I think I just took a step to understanding what white wine is for. And that just made my day because it's like, okay, great job done. We got him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And he's bought a lot more white wine since then just because of that one Sauvignon Blanc. When did the New Zealand wines really start picking up popularity here? Because it seemed like it was, it, it seemed like it happened really fast. It did. Now I was living in Scotland when that first started picking up. So I for example, had my first taste of Dog Point Sauvignon Blanc, which is still one of my favorites uh, from there because it's got much more subtlety and and complexity compared to other wines in the same price range. But one of my whiskey clients was also a wine distributor, and he came up to the island for a weekend, and and so I met up with him uh, for dinner, and he brought a bottle of Dog Point Sauvignon Blanc, and this was probably I want to say like 
early 2000s, probably 2001, 2002. And I was just blown away. I'd never had anything like it in my life. And that was my first taste of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And it's been the standard I judge all the other ones from since then. But so there you go. It was starting to emerge in terms of quality wine. It was starting to emerge in the UK in the early 2000s. But they've got they've got historic connections with New Zealand. Whereas the States, eh, Oyster Bay and Kim Crawford and wines like that started showing up probably about the mid 2000s, I would say. They were certainly here when I came back from Scotland. So yeah, they were, they were around by, by the mid to later 2000s, but they took off like a rocket. You know, like, like me, people had never had anything quite like it. It's kind of like somebody trying a really badass IPA for the first time and going, holy cow, I got to have some more of this. <laughs> but, eventually, but eventually your palate gets exhausted with it and you need a break. It, and I certainly find that with, with a lot of the New Zealand stuff. They're, they've kind of reached this generic plateau where they all kind of taste the same, more or less. And it's, it's a much, much rarer occurrence for one of them to stand out as oh, now that's got something going on, something unexpected. So, but for drinking on its own, it's got a big character. It stands by itself. You don't need food. It's, it is nice with goat cheese, but by itself, it, it still carries, carries the ball. So let's go up to the, uh, the biggest, the heaviest, and really oh, the yeah. most famous here in the States. Well, it's Napa Chardonnay, and that is another grape that can be completely different if it's grown yeah. in a different way. Like, you know, the, I mean, obviously, the, the classic is 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 Burgundy, where yep. Chardonnay is the white grape, but also yep. like Oregon Chardonnay is completely different from Northern California Chards. Mm-hmm. Again, is it is it just climate? Is it could you grow? Could you even grow like a a, a Burgundy style Chardonnay in Napa Valley or in Sonoma, or is it just is it not even going to happen there? Okay, so there's there's a number of factors, but one thing that uh, you really need to understand about Chardonnay in particular is that it is so easily manipulated, even after harvest. There are so many things that you can do with it to push it in a particular direction. There's so much winemaking technology that's developed, especially in the last 15 years or so, that can make a Chardonnay almost anything. Um, it, it It's just a total chameleon. It, it, can, it can adapt to any style that you want to go, but climate does have, a, it plays a massive role. So like if you look at the Chardonnay from Oregon. Yes, there are a lot of Burgundian producers that have come to Oregon and invested. They're not making Burgundian wines because the soil's different, but what they are doing is bringing the Burgundian aesthetic of, well, let's just specifically go with Chardonnay. It's a much more reductive style. There's very little oxygen involved. There's no new oak and the climate as well gives you wines that retain acidity because it's much cooler. But if you go down to certain parts of California where it just stays hot, the wine develops. Chardonnay goes from, in Burgundy, having these sort of green apple, beautiful, crisp, fresh fruit flavors to hot climate in California where pineapple, I mean, you just get this pineapple upside down cake character about it. And then you get this big plastering of oak on top of that. And it's just, to me, it's the wine equivalent of somebody wearing far too much perfume in a small room. It's just over the top. I don't care if your perfume costs you, you know, 500 bucks for a tiny little vial, you're still wearing too much of it. And that's kind of how I feel about that heavy, oaky, ponderous, flabby, warm California shard. It's, it's just, it's just so... Ugh, man, it just. I, <laughs> but it doesn't. It I obviously just, it doesn't have to be that way because I mean, nope. like part of the reason that 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 particular style is so iconic in the states is because that was like our first popular and well done and well made homegrown wine. Like that was it was a California mm-hmm. shard that won the famous the 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 Judgment of Paris when when was Judgment that back of Paris, in the yep. back in the seventies or back something? in the seventies. And that mm-hmm. was like what was it about that? Was it just because it was such a different style and so fresh and so interesting? that the winemakers, you know, the notoriously sort of sniffy 
French winemakers were like, this is just interesting and we want to recognize it? Or what was, what drove the popularity of Chard in the U.S.? Right. It's an easy grape to grow. And like I say, it is it is very flexible in terms of being able to make it do certain things in the winery. To put the judgment of Paris into some kind of context, at the time that it was done, yes, a lot of the European producers, these uh, the French folks from Bordeaux in particular, were kind of resting on their laurels because they had this massive international reputation. And they just kind of said, well, if we just keep doing things the way we always have done, we'll be fine. Well, in California, they didn't have that to fall back on. They didn't have that internationally recognized reputation, which is why it was so shocking at the time. Shadow Montalena was one of the one of the characters in the story and Shadow Montalena from early on put a huge amount of effort into keeping their winery clean, which was not necessarily the case in Bordeaux at the time. <laughs> and so you were getting a lot of uh a lot of off aromas and flavors in the Bordeaux wines, but Chateau Montalena, they really put a huge effort into crafting their wine and they were much more focused on that. And so, and, and the use of new oak was nowhere near as overt then as it is now. They had to be much more careful and more subtle. The Chateau Montalena Chardonnay, even though there are some oak flavors to it, is still one of my favorite California Chardonnays. Uh, they, they do a great job on it. But because the wine was made in, in more careful circumstances, it was cleaner, it was more vibrant, it was more interesting, it was just a more engaging wine. Whereas the producers in Burgundy that were, were around at the time, they were relying more on history and they were more complacent. And it really, the effect of it overall was to shake them completely out of this sleepwalking that they were doing every vintage and make them sit up and go, you know, if we don't get our act together, these guys are going to kick our butts. And it worked. But unfortunately, the style was carried so far in the direction of that tropical fruit, uh, almost syrupy character, and then overlaying that with just so much oak and the wine having no acid to balance that out which you do get in Burgundy because it's cooler climate. It's resulted in a wine style that's kind of a bit of a cartoon, you know. It, it kind of like the it, the character, it, it, the uh, the sort of jokey IPA these days, which is you know what started out as a new and interesting and very well balanced style is now just like let's dump eight million pounds of hops and make a nine yeah. percent alcohol yeah, beer and call it a double IPA and here you go. Yeah, how far can we carry this? You know, if people like it this way, then if we if we increase that exponentially, then they'll like it even more. It's like, well, that's that's faulty logic. Uh. So that was so the oak is the oak is one one component of the you know the mm -hmm. sort of classic nat, Napa cat or a Chardonnay, and then the other is that characteristic buttery flavor and sort of yep. buttery texture as well. And so how is yes. that how is that developed? Okay, so a lot of people. Uh, I get the impression a lot of consumers just assume that because the oaky style and the buttery style are inextricably linked, they assume that the oak is somehow responsible for that. It is not. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a process that a wine that has already undergone the alcoholic fermentation, when that has taken place, there is another process that almost universally happens with red wines, but depending on temperature and stuff, can also happen with white wines, and that is referred to as secondary malolactic fermentation. Malic acid is the kind of crisp, edgy acid that you would get in an apple. You know, apple trees, the genus of the apple is malus, M-A-L-U-S. Well, malic acid is the acid that you get, say, in a really tart Granny Smith apple. And that is the acid uh, most common in uh, especially in white wines. Um, you'll get tartaric acids as well, but they're not nearly as big a player. But malic acid is sharp, it's edgy, it's, it's racy. It's what you want in a Sauvignon Blanc. But in a Chardonnay, if you're trying to do that oaky style, you don't want that kind of acid. It would jar too much because the, the barrels already contribute tannin, which also equals bitterness. So you need to soften that up. Or otherwise, it just is really raspy on the palate. And for a white wine, you just don't want that. Malolactic fermentation 
is a result of a group of bacteria that will convert malic acid to lactic acid, i.e. the same acid that you get in, in milk products, you know, butter, yogurt, cheese, milk. That is when those not just buttery flavors come up, but you also will get yogurt. You will get cream. In some cases, you will even get a, a, some cheese characteristic on the, on the palate. That creamy style of Chardonnay goes hand in hand with the oak. And so you'll take somebody like, uh, let's take an expensive oaky buttery Chardonnay, Rombauer. Okay. About 40 bucks a bottle. Those wines, you can probably look on the back label and see what percentage of malolactic conversion took place. And so you so, were saying yeah. that Chardonnay is particularly malleable. Like what characteristics of the Chardonnay grape are, are there that it's either more susceptible or easier to to sort of manipulate in the winemaking process than something like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Gris? Like why don't they manipulate those more or do that? Okay. So let's let's take let's take a couple of extremes. Okay, the Chardonnay because it's a it's a fuller, uh, in the case of California, lower acid wine, much lower. It is suited to the malolactic conversion. It works with that wine. But can you imagine the absolute disaster of a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that had sat in New American oak for a year and had creamy buttery yogurty flavors <laughs> why would anybody do that yes you can do that with a sauvignon blanc because if there's malic acid in the wine and boy there sure is in the new zealand stuff you can under the right circumstances the right environment you can get that wine to fully convert that malic acid to lactic acid but good lord you don't want to so it's not something it's not something that's like characteristic of of the particular grape itself necessarily it's just nope. that given you know the certain flavor profile and the, and the the certain acidity that you're looking for you would just not want to encourage that in anything other than something you know bigger like a like a shard yeah. I mean, like I'd, I'd said earlier that almost all red wine goes through mallow and it does. It, it softens the tannins. So it's totally desirable. It takes a lot of the, the rough granular edges off of that. Um, and it, it works for red wines for the most part. Um, but it has a completely different effect on on other wines like you know higher acid whites you don't want a riesling to have buttery flavors you don't want uh you know pig pool we haven't discussed pig pool but it's certainly one of my favorite little grapes and i wouldn't want anybody putting that through mallow i like it with my oysters and I, i'll i'll have it just the way they make it <laughs> that's actually a really good segue because i do want to spend um some time talking about the range of, of white wines out there. And, you know, we've, so mm -hmm. we've, now we've sort of covered, you know, the big three, uh, sure. as, at least as far as American wine consumers and wine mm -hmm. knowledge tends to, tends to go and sort of where you can branch off from there. But there are a ton of white wines out there and they might even be more obviously different from each other than red wines. Yeah. I, I almost feel like every white wine that I've ever had, you can almost remember it very specifically because they're so different. You know, whereas red wines yeah. tend to share a lot of characteristics and the differences tend to be a little more subtle, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that reason has to do, uh, and I, I think that's a very good way of putting it. When you, when you finally get down to it, the winemaking process for red wines and white wines are vastly different. I think when we were talking about red wine, if, if I'm not mistaken, we did cover the fact that when a red wine is going through its fermentation, there's a maceration period where the skins are left in contact with the juice and that extracts not just color compounds, but flavor compounds out of those skins. Not only that, but what you also get is tannin. You're going to have to work with those tannins and flavor compounds in a different way than you would with a white wine because the the inside part of the grape, it's it's almost always about the same color. It's it's mainly the skin that's different. Right, and the um, only, even white wine, frequently white wine grapes will be red skin. They just don't sit on the skin, so. Yeah, if you look at, uh, well, Pinot Gris, for example, it's it means gray Pinot. Pinot Noir is black Pinot. 
Pinot Blanc or Bianco is white Pinot. And then you've got Pinot Gris or Grigio, which is gray. The skins are this sort of rosy purple with some sort of greenish yellow highlights. They're beautiful grapes to look at. But when you cut one open, it doesn't look any different than Pinot Bianco or Pinot Noir or whatever. It's what goes on in the skins is where the, the flavor comes from for the red wines. When you've got tannin as a as a massive factor in your winemaking, well then, yeah, there's certain avenues that are closed off to you after that. Because if you're going to have a tannic wine that that is balanced, you have to do certain processes to make that wine palatable. Otherwise, it's just going to be this, it'll be like drinking slightly fruity, way over-brewed black tea. It'll well, just be... That's yeah. actually, that's kind of interesting. I never really thought about that before, but I mean, tannins themselves, like structurally, they're pretty much going to be the same regardless of where you find them, right? Like, are yeah. leather tannins going to be that different from the tannins that you find in, in you know, grape skins or the tannins that you find in tea? No, no, because tannin, tannin itself actually doesn't have a flavor. It merely produces that drying response and... In the case of red wine, it contributes a huge amount to the structure and longevity of that wine. It also means that, like, if you're eating something like a nice, oh man, a nice fat lamb chop, that fat and that tannin get along because the the fat is going to prevent that tannin from drying your mouth out so bad that you can't finish your food. Um, so they get along fine. So that tannic structure then is what makes red wines taste, you know, and feel so similar to each other in a way that white wines don't like that's You're basically saying yeah. like the fact that white wine is only the, the, the juice of the individual grapes mm -hmm. is allows it to be so much more versatile and changeable basically because yeah. it doesn't have to overcome the initial hurdle of, you know, Here's a saddle. All that structure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, no, it's, it's, yeah, you got it. You got it bang on there. If you look at the, the oak part of the equation, you know, there's some whites that actually are well suited to oak and that, uh, like if you go to Burgundy, yeah, they're using oak, but it's not new oak. They will circulate in a small percentage of new oak on some of their better wines, but in, in the main, they're going to be using barrels that are at least two to three years old. They're fairly neutral. What they contribute is structure to the wine, and they also allow for uh, micro-oxygenation, small, minute amounts of oxygen getting into the wine to, to change the character a little bit. But tannin in the main is just not a factor with white wine. It, it it just isn't because the skins are taken away almost immediately. Um, they crush, they press, that's it. The skin's gone. So white wines can produce a much, in my view, can produce a far greater variety of, of, of subtlety and, and just aromas and flavors that you cannot get in a, in a red wine much uh, that easily or that commonly. You've got more delicate flavors like florals, which come through. Like it, for anybody that's ever had a, an Argentine um, Tarantez, there's no denying that jasmine or rose or some other flower is, is, a, is an aromatic note there. You go to some of the Rhone whites, which one of my favorite subjects, you know, Viognier, Marsan, those wines are going to have florals like honeysuckle, which, you know, if that's in a red wine, it's going to have to exist in much higher quantities just to be detectable. So in the white wines, you, you get a huge range of fruit, um, you get florals, you get spices, just an incredible variety there, which is why for me, it's just such a, such an exciting thing to bring into my food. I, I just think they do a great job. So one of the things I'd, I'd wanted to mention was that, okay, with the, with the three popular styles that we talked about with American consumers, you know, the heavier Chardonnay, the sort of uh, inoffensive Pinot Grigio, and that bright, crisp, kind of raspy, green New Zealand Sauvignon. Are there other avenues to go that are not completely outside of people's comfort zones, yeah, you better believe it. To the Chardonnay drinker that isn't absolutely wedded to oak being part of their wine, I would urge them to try some Rhone whites because they are not lightweights in any shape of, of the word. They, they have a richness about them, aside from the floral character that I mentioned with Viognier and Marsan. Um, 
Roussan's got a lot of structure to it. It it will give you a big wine, but it's not overblown and it's not manufactured in some chemistry lab somewhere. This is what the grapes actually are good at doing. And so um, you can get more sort of peach, nectarine, apricot, uh, those floral elements, a little bit of spice, really good with richer seafood like uh, lobster and scallops. Um, I would say too heavy for oysters, but they'll work for like some richer crab and shrimp dishes. They're great. A whole lot of fun. And and so they still give you that that heavier texture, that, that bigger mouthfeel that you would get with one of your richer Chardonnays, but it's far from artificial. It's it's not produced in the lab. It's it's what it's supposed to be, and then you've got some lighter Rhones uh, that are kind of in the middle. Uh, if they if they've got a lot of Grenache Blanc in them, Grenache is fairly uh, in in the white grape is is fairly neutral, but it allows you to take those heavier grapes like the Viognier, Marsan, Roussan, and hang them on that that structure. And so then they're, they're accents rather than main players, but they work. They still contribute something nice to the wine, and they're very reasonably priced. You know, you look at the Gigal Cote du Rhone Blanc, good Lord, man, 13 14 bucks for that? It, well, I'm that sorry. Seems to be, that seems to be a real characteristic with a lot of white wines. Once you get out of, you know, the big three of, well, maybe big four if you count white burgundy. Sure. You know, once you get out of out of those, there's a lot of really, really inexpensive white wines out there that are awesome. Well, sure. There's a lot less that goes into making them. They're, they're producing them in stainless steel tanks most of the time. By and large, oak is not a, a, a big contributing factor, if at all. Um, so there's not the expense of that. You don't have to keep them in the cellar for sometimes a couple of years. So there's a lot less expense there. They make them, they let them rest in tank, like in the case of the Rhone wines, they've got to blend them. But once they've, once they've put them in a tank to kind of integrate, they're released the next year. They're fine. They're ready to go. It's kind of like, you know, vodka is a lot cheaper to produce than scotch whiskey because they don't have to <laughs> sit around for, you know, an eternity. They just make it and get it out there. Okay. So we haven't, we haven't talked about what maybe my favorite white that I've just, dis- well, I didn't discover it. Other people told me about it and I tried it, which is, uh, and, and it's never, it's never let me down. And it always seems like it, it's fairly inexpensive and it frequently comes in liter bottles, which is another, uh, another uh I think I know where we're going here. <laughs> Grunerveld Leaner and it's Austrian yep. and it's, I, I haven't found a situation where it doesn't work yet. Yep. I love that stuff. Okay. <laughs> Gruner Veltliner or Groovy as as it's known. But yeah, you could get the burger. It was, I mean, the label looked like it had been printed up in grandma's garage or something. And it was in a liter bottle. It even had a beer cap on it rather than a cork or a screw cap. <laughs> and it always delivered. It, it, it still does. But the thing with Gruner, okay, you get some really cool green apple character that you get from a lot of whites in that part of the world. Because uh, it's cool climate, but what you also get as as a bonus is this just lovely kind of white pepper sting on the finish that just works with like just give me some baked halibut with some black pepper on it and and a glass of that and just leave me alone I'm good. But you'll also get some vegetal character to it that is not unwelcome. It's more like fresh snow peas, you know. It's that kind of fresh, earthy vegetal rather than like broccoli, you know, right. it's not like that. And as a result, it works with, it works with seafood. It works with chicken, works with vegetarian cuisine very well. Um, there's Schnitzel. so much. Oh man, <laughs> get out of town. Perfect. Well, and it Perfect. does, it does actually go with pork really well because, uh, it goes beautifully with pork. Yeah. I mean that with, uh, with some like choucroux garni or something like that, uh, just sausages and sauerkraut. Hello, man. Invite me to dinner. I'm there. I'll bring a bottle. Wonderful wine. Um, highly, uh, under underrated, underrecognized kind of off most people's radar. I sold a lot of it when I lived down in Haines. Really? Uh, it was, yeah. I, I just, I, tipped people off to it and they just they freaked they were like how can a wine in a bottle this big for this price be this good (laughs) well that's what the austrians do they do a great job um yeah wonderful i love gruner 
You know, there's something so generous about a liter bottle of wine. You know, it's like, it's like an admission. Like, you know, the the standard 750 mil is it's just not quite enough. You know, especially if you're cooking with wine. That's my excuse. It's like, well, of course I have to get a liter. You don't expect me not to put any wine in the dinner, do you? (laughs) I don't. I don't say that I'm putting in like half an ounce of this stuff, but you know, still, it's enough to keep. It's enough to keep the chef from getting too thirsty. Put it that way. You got you got to be happy when you're cooking, you know. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you mentioned Albarino, and I would I would love to hear more about that because even though I've had it and I like it, I really don't know very much about it. And I I'm sort of like that with with all Spanish wines. Like, there's very few f- Spanish wines that I've found that I really am not that interested in. I like them. I and- understand. Yep. So much in the same way that Sangiovese uh, has its sort of spiritual home, if you will, in Tuscany, Italy. You know, try a Sangiovese grown anywhere else and you're always going to be going, yeah, it's good, but uh, I've had better. Albarino, to me, even though you can grow it elsewhere and they are doing some very interesting work in even Uruguay, for example. But really? I did mention, yeah, yeah, they do. It. It's it's shocking. Huh. Uh, it's it's much better than I would have expected. But I visited uh, the Rios Baixas region of uh, northwestern Spain. It's in Galicia, right on the coast, and it's it's kind of a unique area in that there are a number of different rivers and estuaries that feed in Rios, meaning rivers. Um, th- several different rivers feed into this kind of flattening out area where there's all these kind of brackish water intertidal estuaries that grow a lot of seafood there. I had just acres of shellfish cages out there. Um, Really good oysters, really good mussels, you name it. And the unique thing about this wine region is that there are the designated areas where they're allowed to grow grapes are not connected by any kind of land borders. It's like there's a pocket over here where we know we can grow really good Albarino. There's another pocket in this little valley where we know we can grow really good Albarino. And so there's like four different distinct growing regions in Rias Baixas. They all grow Albarino and it's hundreds and thousands of individual uh, small farmers where their vineyards are only part of their farming operation. And they've been selling their grapes to the winemakers for generations. And the problem they have there is because it's so close to the ocean, what you also get is higher moisture, which equals disease pressure. You've got a lot more uh, risk of molds, uh, uh, fungus, etc. So they have to grow their vines up on these pergolas. And they, and they have these, uh, in some cases, over 100-year-old carved granite posts holding up this network of wires that they they train their vines on and uh i was i visited this one vineyard and i'm talking and i'm learning about all this stuff and i'm I thought, well, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can ask a smart question. So, I, I, I said, uh, I said, so I, I see that on these granite posts there are different wear marks with little rusty bits. So obviously the the vines, the wires for training the vines have have been put at different heights over time. And and I said, why is that exactly? And I thought I was going to get a really interesting answer. And I thought they were going to look at me like, I'm glad you asked me that. And they're like, well, you see, sometimes the farmer, he is taller. <laughs> and I, man, I turned, I turned so red with embarrassment. I just, I thought, yeah, clever boy. Yeah, sometimes the farmer, he is taller. So, yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about one more specific grape, uh, just because it's sort of ex- experienced a uh, slight boost in popularity recently. And it's also uh, from a country that I know you have very much love for, which is Portugal. And oh, that is yes. Vino Verde, which is yes. almost like, it's like, it, I would almost say it's it's kind of like a Portuguese Pinot Grigio, except it's it's different in some way. You got one of my favorites there. Vino Verde is a region, and what it basically means is is green wine. And the reason for calling it that is that the grapes are harvested early. When you harvest the grapes early, they don't ripen to the same extent 
And so they don't build up as much sugar, which equates to lower alcohol in the final product. What you also get is more retained acidity, which is exactly what you want. And in some cases, uh, you would get a secondary ferment, which gives a very, very light uh, sparkle to the wine. Some bubbles, a little pétillance, but not not to the extent that a you know a bottle of champagne would give you. Uh, one of the common grapes there in Vino Verde is uh, Lurero, which is very high in acid. It it lemon juice would have a hard time standing up to this stuff. Really bright. Um, but you'll find that these wines are usually in the range of about nine and a half, ten percent alcohol. Uh, they make a beautiful wine spritzer because they're they have the acid. But if you put in like a little bit of uh, I've done like a like a simple syrup, just like maybe even a teaspoon of simple syrup with that wine and maybe some soda water and some mint and psh, man smack my ass and call me Judy. It's really good. Um, and very easy. When you take a wine that's already that low in alcohol and then you add a little bit of soda water to it, you've got a long drink. You can. It's a porch pounder. You can sit out there with a pint of one of those and it'll last you a while. But it's great with fish and it's not so high in alcohol that say you have a couple of glasses of that while you're making dinner you're not going to drop everything on your way to the table because it's lower alcohol. It's, it's much easier. Okay, last question before we go. Yeah. And this, I'm just going to throw you a curveball just to see what you say. What white wine would you serve with a big, juicy ribeye? White Chateauneuf du Pape. It's such a massive wine. There's a lot of different factors in there, but richness is is one of my one of my hallmarks for that. Yeah, white Chateauneuf has for years been the white that I would pair with steak. It can handle it all. It's a mind-boggling wine, and you're going to spend at least fifty bucks for it. But it'll be the wine experience of a lifetime. For some reason, people don't care what the price of wine is as long as they're eating it with steak. I'm glad. Okay, I'm going to throw yeah. you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pepper you with like a lightning round of, you know, quick okay. quick pairings. I just thought of this, so I'm going to do it. Okay, uh, spicy Thai. Uh, dry to off dry uh, Gewürztraminer. Okay, Alaskan, <laughs> Alaskan potluck classic halibut Olympia. You know, the halibut that gets baked with the mayonnaise and the sour cream and topped with potato chips. Got it. Um, okay, I haven't tried this one, but okay. You've got all that salt. And you've also got fat from the cream, so you're gonna need you're gonna need some acid, but you're also gonna need some fruit. So, yeah, I don't want to lean on Riesling too much because I've already gone there. Uh, ooh, you know, an Alsace Pinot Gris would be nice, and I would also consider. Oh, crap. <laughs> That's a good one, Jeff. It's the... Okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do the default on this one and say that a sparkling wine, because Ooh. it's, it is necessarily going to have the acid that you need. Uh, there's a reason that, that like top class champagne gets along really well with both potato chips and French fries. Right. Because of the sour cream, I want something else. So I would I would go uh, with a sparkling Alsace Pinot Blanc, or if you really want to push the boat out a little bit and and have the contrast between potluck styly and I'm a badass wine buyer styly, <laughs> I would go with a Blanc de Blanc uh, Champagne, pure Chardonnay, high acid, no serious oak to worry about, and that little toasty edge that will make the fried potato chips just sing for their supper. I'll allow it, even though this is technically not the sparkling wine episode. <laughs> okay, uh, next, falafel. Okay, with that degree of spice and fat, uh, I, would, I would be looking at uh, dry gewurz. Man, I hate to repeat myself, but okay, let's, let's go somewhere else with it then. Okay, with that degree of spice... Um, you could do well with, uh, some of the Rhone whites, like a Viognier, um, and that you don't have to spend a huge amount of money on. Um, but yeah, I think the Viognier would work. Uh, let's see, 
Oh, but I got to figure in that that sort of yogurty sauce too, and and a, and an off dry riesling. Okay, if it's if it's really spicy, I would go I would go with an off dry just because it's lower alcohol. Okay, last one. Okay, all right. White king salmon with a burblanc, and and the burblanc is going to be made with this wine. So that factor that into your into got your it. thoughts. I think. If you want to stick with domestic, I would go with an Oregon Chardonnay um, because it's higher acid, which really works with the Bourbon Blanc. And also some of those reductive um, sulfur compounds works with the kind of smokiness of the, the Bourbon Blanc. Um, otherwise, I would go for an inexpensive uh, white Burgundy. What's my other smoky white? Maybe a richer Sancerre. Uh, a little bit of Sauvignon would would do the job. So yeah, yeah. Pui, oh, Puy Fume would do the job. There you go. All yeah, right. Puy, Puy Fume. Okay. <laughs> I like the lightning round. I'm gonna have to do this to you every time I have you on the show. Please do. I like the ex- <laughs> I like the exercise. It's good. All right, Skip Clary. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down over the internet in our remote session yes we are self-isolating we are safely social distancing from each yes. other i'm only hanging out here with some duck legs and some crepes and some wild mushrooms so sounds that's difficult my, that's my plan for the day <laughs> all right well thank you so much and uh i'm sure we'll have you back on the show at some point yeah, it's been a blast jeff thanks very much yep. and keep keep drinking well people <laughs> and eating yo of course, especially with white wine. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Skip Clary. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the second episode of the seventh season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.